0: Introduction Indian historical knowledge by and large has been derived at least until recent decades from the writings and accounts by foreigners. This applies equally to our knowledge about the status of Indian education over the past five centuries. The universities of Takshila and Nalanda and a few others until recently have been better known and written about primarily because They had been described centuries ago by some Greek or Chinese traveler who happened to keep a journal which had survived and had communicated such information to his compatriots who passed it down to our times. Travelers and adventurers of a new kind began to wander around parts of India around 15th century and more so from about the close of the 16th century. Since for centuries the areas they came from had had no direct links with India, and as they had come from wholly different climates and societies, to them most aspects of India its manners, religions, philosophies, ancient and contemporary architecture, wealth, learning, and even its educational methods were something quite different from their own background, assumptions and experiences. Prior to 1770, by which time they had become actual rulers of India, the British, on whose writings and reports this book is primarily based, had rather a different set of interests in India. These interests, as in the subsequent period were largely mercantile, technological or were concerned with comprehending and evaluating Indian statecraft and thereby extending their influence and dominion in India. Indian religions, philosophies, scholarship and the extent of education notwithstanding what a few of them may have written on the Parsis or the Baniyas of Surat had scarcely entrusted them until then such a lack of interest was due partly to their different expectations from India the main reason for this however lay in uh, the fact that the British society of this period from the mid 16th to about the later part of the 18th century had few such interests. In matters like religion, philosophy, learning and education, the British were introverted by nature. It is not that Britain had no tradition of education or scholarship or philosophy during the 16th, 17th or the early 18th century. This period produced figures like Francis Bacon, Shakespeare, Milton Newton, etc. It had the universities of Oxford, Cambridge and Edinburgh, which had their beginnings in about 13th or the 14th century. By the later part of the 18th century, Britain also had around 500 grammar schools. However, this considerable learning and scholarship were limited to very select elite. This became especially marked after the mid 16th century when the protestant revolution led to the closing of most of the monasteries while the state sequestered their incomes and properties. Before the protestant revolution, according to A. E. Dobbs, the University of Oxford might be described as chief charity school of the poor and the chief grammar school in England, as well as the great place of education for the students of theology, of law and medicine. And where instruction was not gratuitous throughout the school, some arrangement was made by means of graduated scale of admission fees and cartridges, and a system of maintenance to bring the benefits of the institution within the reach of the poorest. Further, while a very early statute of England specified, no one shall put their child apprentice within any city or borough unless they had land or rent of twenty shillings per annum, but they shall be put to such labor as their father's or mother's use or as their estates require it nonetheless also stated that any person may send their children to school to learn literature from about the mid 16th century however a contrary trend set in it even led to the enactment of the law that the english bible should not be read in the churches the right of private reading was granted to nobles, gentry and merchants that were householders. It was expressly denied to artificers, apprentices, or journeymen and servingmen of the degree of yeoman or under to husbandmen and laborers so as to allay certain symptoms of disorder occasioned by a free use of scriptures. According to this new trend, it was meet for a plowman's son to go to blow and the artificer's son to apply for trade of his parents' vocation. And the gentleman's children are meet to have the knowledge of government and rule in the commonwealth. For we have as much need of men as any other state and all sorts of men may not go to school. A century and a half later, that is from about the end of 17th century, there is a slow reversal of the above trend, leading to the setting up of some new charity schools for common people. These schools are mainly conceived to provide some leverage in the way of general education to raise the laboring class to the level of religious instruction and more so in Wales with the object of preparing the poor by reading and Bible study for the Sunday worship and catechetically uh, instruction. After a short start, however, the charity school movement rather became dormant around 1780 It was succeeded by Sunday school movement. Popular education, even at this period, was still approached as a missionary enterprise. The maxim was that every child should learn to read the Bible. The hope of securing a decent observance of Sunday led to the concentrated effort on the promotion of Sunday schools. After some years, this attention focused on the necessity of day schools from then on school education grew apace nevertheless even I would say uh, even as late as 1834 the curriculum in the better class of national schools were was limited in the main to religious instruction reading writing and arithmetic in some country schools writing was excluded for fear of evil consequences. The major impetus to the, school, to the day school movement came from what was termed the Peel's Act of 1802. This act required the employer of young children to provide during the first four years of the seven years of apprenticeship competent instruction in reading, writing, and arithmetic, and to secure the presence of his apprentice at religious teaching for one hour every Sunday and attendance at a place of worship on that day. But the act was unpopular, and its practically effect was not great. At about the same time, however. The monitorial method of teaching used by Joseph Lancaster and also by Andrew Bell, supposedly borrowed from India again, came into practice and greatly helped advance the cause of popular education in England. The number of those attending schools was estimated at around 40,000 in the year 1792 It grew up to seventy four thousand eight hundred eighty three in 1818 and then it further grew up till 21,44,377 in the year 1851. The total number of schools public as well as private in 1801 was stated to be around 3,363 in England. By stages, it reached a total of about 46,000 in 1851. In the beginning, the teachers were seldom competent. And Lancaster insinuates that the men were not only ignorant but drunken, as regards The number of years of schooling, Dobbs writes that allowing for irregularity of attendance the average length of school life rises on a favorable estimate from about one year in 1835 to about two years in 1851. The fortunes of English education or public schools are said to have fallen stringingly during the 18th century. In January 1797, the famous school of Shrewsbury, for instance, did not have above three or four boys overall. After some major reorganization, it had about 20 people a year later. In public schools like Eton, teaching consisted of writing and arithmetic, a number of English, and Latin books were studied, while those in the fifth form also learned ancient geography or algebra. Those who stayed at Eton long enough also went through part of Euclid. However, it was not till the year 1851 that mathematics became a part of regular school work and even at that date, those who taught the subject were not regarded as persons of full standing on the staff of masters. School education, especially elementary education at the people's level, remained an uncommon commodity till around 1800 in England. Nonetheless, the universities of Oxford, Cambridge and Edinburgh were perhaps as important for Britain as Takshila and Nalanda were in ancient India or places like Navadvipa were as late as the later part of the 18th century since many of those who began to come to India from Britain especially after 1773 as uh, travelers, scholars or judges had had their education in one of these three universities. It may be relevant to provide here a brief account of the courses studied together with the number of students in one of these universities around 1800. The university chosen here is that of Oxford and it is assumed that this information is also fairly representative of studies at Cambridge and Edinburgh at this period. The growth of the University of Oxford, following England's rupture with Rome, may be indicated with the following chronology list of professorships created there from 1546 onwards. So, in about uh, 1546, uh, if you look in, if we look for the curriculums which were there uh, in the University of Oxford. So, uh, five professorships founded by Henry, the eighth, first is divinity, second is civil law, third is medicine, fourth is Hebrew, and the fifth one is Greek. In the year 1619, uh, Oxford introduced geometry and astronomy. In 1621, they introduced natural philosophy. In the year 1621, again, moral philosophy, but break between 1707 to 1829. There's nothing about this period in the moral philosophy that they were running. Also in the year 1622, ancient history, that is Hebrew and Europe. In the year 1624, they introduced grammar, rhetoric, metaphysics, fell into disuse, replaced, by logic in 1839 in 1624 again they introduced anatomy, in 1626 music, 1636 Arabic, 1669 botany 1708 poetry, 1724 modern history and modern languages and the year 1749 they introduced experimental philosophy then in 1758 they introduced common law In 1780, they introduced Clinical Instructions, and in 1795, they introduced Anglo-Saxon, that is language, literature, etc., and in 1803, they introduced Chemistry. In the beginning of 19th century now, there were 19 colleges and 5 halls in Oxford. There were about 500 fellows in the colleges and a few of whom were engaged in teaching in each college. In addition, there were 19 professors in 1800, the year 1800. This total had increased by 25 by the year 1854. Theology theology and classics were the main subjects which were studied at the beginning of the 19th century. Examinations were set in classics known as Littere, humaniuris. This is a Greek word, I guess. These include Greek and Latin languages and literature, moral philosophy, rhetoric and logic, and the elements of mathematical sciences and physics. Lectures were also available on other topics, example law, medicine and geology. After 1805, there was an increase of in the number of the students entering the university. The number of students on the rolls rose from about seven hundred and sixty in the year in the early nineteenth century to about thirteen hundred in uh, eighteen twenty 1820 to eighteen twenty four. So the main sources of financial support of the colleges in Oxford were their endowments, mainly in land and income from students. The proportion of income from each source varied from college to college. Taking a wider view of all the expenses of the university courses including clothing and traveling, a parent who clothed his son and supported him at the university as well as during the vacation could expect to pay about uh, 600 to 800 euros or sorry pounds for his uh, four-year course around 1800, the year 1850. So that's the pretty much the kind of uh, education system they had. The course, uh, the books, the different uh, subjects, how they got introduced in time, in Oxford uh, University and in uh, parallel also to Cambridge and to Edinburgh University. So it's about that and so it says that the average Pay that a parent has to uh, bear for his or her son uh, for a total uh, of a four-year course in the year 1850 was about 600 to 800 pounds. So that was still very costly. I mean, you can very well understand that's the reason why the author says that uh, it was very limited to the elite people in England. So if you talk about the middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class anybody below that they never had any kind of I would say uh, an exposure to these universities which England had uh, since from about uh, 13th and 14th century while the British as well as the Dutch the Portuguese and the French directly or in the name of various East India companies they had set up in the late 16th and early 17th centuries were busy extending their bases, factories, fortifications and the like and wherever possible occupying whole territories in the Indian Ocean area. European scholars on their part were trying to understand various aspects of civilizations existing in this area prominent amongst These were members of several Christian monastic orders. The most well-known being the Jesuits, who were specializing in the field of sciences, customs, manners, philosophies, and religions. There were some others within trust of more political, historical, or economic nature. Many of them took to narrating their own adventures and occasionally uh, misfortunes in the fabulous and exotic East. Due to the widespread interest of the European elite, much of this writing was published in one or more European languages soon after. Accounts and discussions, which happened to be of a limited but great scholarly and religious interest, were occupied by hand uh, many times over. This great accumulation of material from about the mid-18th century led to series uh, scholarly attention and debate on India and in areas of Southeast Asia, particularly with regard to their politics, law, philosophies and sciences, especially Indian astronomy. This contemporary European interest, especially amongst uh, Men like Voltaire, Abby Raynell or uh, Sean Sylvian Bailey aroused a similar interest in Britain. This was more so amongst those connected with the University of Edinburgh like Adam Ferguson, William Robertson, John Playfair and A. McConaughey. In the year 1775, Adam Ferguson recommended to his former student John Macpherson temporarily to be Governor General of Bengal during 1784-85 to collect the fullest details you can of every circumstance relating to the state and operation of policy in India, that you may the better apprehended That you may the better apprehend what i mean by the detail select some town and its districts procure if possible an account of its extent of number of people different classes of that people the occupations the resources the way of life of each how they are related and their mutual dependencies what contributions government or subordinate masters draw from the laborer of any denomination and how it is drawn. But I beg pardon for saying so much of an object which you must know uh, so much better than I do. The man who can bring light from India that is of its material resources, etc., into this country, and who has addressed to make his light be followed, may in few years hence make himself of great consequence, and here I shall conclude my letter." A. McConaughey advocated, on the other hand, forced in 1783 and then again in 1788, The taking of such measures by our monarch, the sovereign of the banks of the Gangas, as may be necessary for discovering, collecting, and translating whatever is the extent of the ancient works of the Hindus. He thought that if the British procured these works to Europe, astronomy and antiquities the sciences connected with them would be advanced in a still greater proportion. He observed further that the antiquities of the religion and government of the Hindus are not less interesting than those of their sciences, and felt that the history, the poems, the traditions, the very fables of Hindus might therefore throw light upon the history of the ancient world and in, the and in particular upon the institutions of that celebrated people from whom Moses received his learning and Greece her religion and her arts. Professor McConaughey also stated that the center of most of his learning was Banaras where all, where all sciences are still talked and where very ancient works in astronomy are still extant. Around the same time, a similar vein of thought and some corresponding action had started amongst those who had been entrusted with the exercise of political power and the carrying out of the policies and instructions from London within India. The more practical and immediate purpose of governance following Adam Ferguson led to the writing of books on Hindu and Muslim laws, investigations into the rights of property and the revenues of various areas and to assist all this to a cultivation of Sanskrit and Persian amongst some of the British themselves. acquaintances. Uh, with these languages was felt necessary so as to enable the British to discover better or to discard, choose or to select what suited their purpose most. In this process, some of them also developed a personal interest in Sanskrit and other Indian literature for its own sake or for the sort of reasons which professor McConaughey had in view Charles Wilkins, William Jones, F. W. Ellis in Madras, and Lieutenant Wilford, the latter got engaged in some very exotic research at Varanasi, were amongst the most were amongst the more well known men of this category who were pretty much very fluent with Sanskrit and Indian literature. Three approaches, seemingly different but in reality complementary to one another, began to operate in the British held areas of India regarding Indian knowledge, scholarship, and centers of learning from about 1770s. The first resulted from growing British power and administrative requirements which, in addition to such undertakings, that men like Adam Ferguson had recommended also needed to provide a garb of legitimacy and a background of previous indigenous precedents, however, far fetched to the new concepts, laws, and procedures which were being created by the British state. It is primarily this requirement which gave birth to British Indology. The second approach was a product of a mind of the Edinburgh Enlightenment, dating back to around 1750, which men like McConaughey represented. They had a fear born out of historical experience, philosophical observation and reflection, the uprooting of entire civilizations in the America, that the conquest and defeat of the civilization generally lead not only to its disintegration, but the disappearance of previous knowledge, disappearance of precious knowledge associated with it. They advocated therefore the preparation of a written record of what existed and what could be got from the learned in places like Varanasi. The third approach was a projection of what was then being attempted in Great Britain itself to bring people to an institutionalized, formal, law-abiding Christianity and for that some literacy and teaching became essential. To achieve such a purpose in India and to assist evangelical exhortation and propaganda for extending christian light and knowledge to the people preparation of the grammars of various indian languages become urgent the task according to william wilberforce called for the circulation of holy scriptures in the native languages with a view to general diffusion of christianity so that Indians would, in short, become Christians, if I may so express myself without knowing it. All these efforts joined together also led to the founding of a few British-sponsored Sanskrit and Persian colleges, as well as to the publication of some Indian texts or selections from them, which suited the purpose of governance. From now on, Christian missionaries also began to open schools. Occasionally, they wrote about the state and extent of indigenous education in the parts of India in which they functioned. However, British interest was not centered on the people, their knowledge or education, or the lack of it. Rather, their interest in ancient texts served their purpose, that of making the people conform that conform to what was chosen for them from such text and their interpretations new interpretations. Their other interest till the year 1813, this was only amongst a section of British, was in the Christiani- Christianization uh, of those who were considered ready for such conversions or in British uh, phraseology of the period for receiving the blessing, blessings of Christian light and moral improvements so it's actually the tactic of conversion that they're talking about these conversions were also expected to serve a more political purpose in as much as it was felt that it could establish some affinity of outlook and belief between the rulers and the ruled a primary consideration in all British decision from the very beginning continued to be the aim of maximization, maximizing the revenue receipts of the government and of discovering any possible new source which had remained exempted from paying any revenue to government. Instructions regarding the collection of information about the extent and nature of indigenous Indian education, including its contemporary state, were largely the consequence of the long debate in the House of Commons in 1813. This debate focused on the clause relating to the promotion of religious and moral improvement in India. Before any new policy could be devised, the existing position needed to be better known. But the quality and coverage of these surveys varied from presidency to presidency and even from district to district. This generally happens in the gathering of any such information and more so when collection of data was fairly new thing. The information which is thus available today, whether published or still in manuscript form in the government records as is true of the details of madras presidency indigenous education survey largely belong belongs to the 1820s and the 1830s period an unofficial survey made by gw Lettner in the year 1882 for the punjab compared the situation there for the years before 1850 With that in year 1882. Before highlighting the main points of information given in the surveys and then proceeding with its analysis, some preliminary observations about the data as a whole are in order. The first observation concerns the largely quantitative nature of the data presented and the fact that it concentrates largely on the institutions of the school as we know it today, this, however, may help propagate wrong impressions. It is important to emphasize that indigenous education was carried out through parshalas, madarsas, and gurukuls. Education in these tradition traditional institutions, which were actually kept alive by revenue contribution by community, including uh, the community illiterate the community's illiterate peasants to uh, was called Siksha and included the ideas of prajna, Shil and Samadhi. These institutions were in fact the watering holes of the culture of traditional communities. Therefore the term school is a weak, translated, is a weak translation of the roles these institutions really play in the Indian society. For this reason, the quantitative nature of the data presented should be read with great caution. The increase in the number of schools in England may not necessarily have been a good thing, as it merely signified the arrival of factory schooling. On the other hand, the decline in the number numbers of traditional educational institutions is to be intensely deplored. Since this meant quality education was being replaced by a substandard substitute, these aspects must always be kept at the back of our minds when we commence analyzing the data for significance. Before we do that, the highlights first. Now the most well-known and controversial point which emerged from the educational surveys lies in an observation made by William Adam. In his first report, he observes that there exist about 1 lakh village schools in Bengal and Bihar around the 1830s. This statement appears to have been founded on the impressions of various high british officials and others who had known the different areas rather intimately or over long periods it had no known backing of official records similarly statements had been made much before uh, w william adam much before william adam Uh, For areas of Madras presidencies too, men like Thomas Munro had observed that every village had a school. For areas of the newly extended Presidency of Bombay around the year 1820, senior officials like G. L. Prendergast noted that there is hardly a village, great or small, throughout our territories. In which there is not at least one school, or in larger villages more. Observation made by Doctor G W Lettner in 1882 show that the spread of education in Punjab around 1850 was of a similar extent. So what we are talking about here is, uh, you know, starting from the Bengal or the Bihar region in the mid-18th century Uh, also uh, following the other reports from different presidencies which were under the British domination at that time like the Bombay or the Madras presidency or even if we talk about uh, situations regarding the education system in Punjab at that time so it was pretty much the same Uh, you know on an average each village used to have one fully functional school where boys and girls both used to study. Since these observations were made, they have been treated very differently by some with the sanctity reserved for divine utterances and by others as blasphemous. Naturally, the first view was linked with the growth of the vocal Indian nationalism. Its exponents, besides prominent Indians of the late 19th and the early 20th century, have also included many illustrious Englishmen like Keir Hardy and academics like Max Muller. The second, the blasphemous view of them, was obviously held by those who were in the later period in one capacity or another concerned with the administration of India, or those who felt impelled sometimes because of their commitment to certain theoretical formulations on the development of societies. To treat all such impressions as unreal, especially after the year 1860, it had become necessary to ensure That men who had had a long period of service in British Indian administration or its ancillary branches, branches and who also had the ability to write should engage in defense of British rule, especially its beginnings and consequently attempt to refute any statement which implied that the British had damaged India in any significant manner. Which much ink while much ink has been split on such a controversy, little attempt is known to have been made for placing these statements or observation in their contextual perspective. Learning Lettner's work, most of these statements belong to the early decades of the nineteenth century. For the later British administrator, the difficulty of appreciating the substance of the controversy is quite understandable for England had few schools for the children of ordinary people till about 1800 even many of the older grammar schools were in poor shape at that time moreover the men who wrote about India whether concerning its education or its industry and crafts or somewhat higher real wages of Indian agriculture laborers compared to such wages in England, belong to the late 18th and the early 19th century society of Great Britain. Naturally, when they wrote about a school in every village in India, whether they may or may not have been literally true, in contrast to the British situation, it must have been appeared to them so. And though they did not much mention this contrast in so many words, it may reasonably be assumed that as, percep- as perceptive observers, it was the very contrast which led them to make such judgments. These surveys, based not on, the, not on mere impressions but on hard data, reveal a great deal the nature of Indian education. Its content, the duration for which it ordinarily lasted, the numbers actually receiving institutional education in particular areas, and most importantly, detailed information on the background of those benefiting from these institutions. The idea of a school existing in every village, dramatic and picturesque in itself, attracted great notice and eclipsed the equally important details. The more detailed and hard facts have received hardly any notice or analysis. This is both natural and unfortunate. For these later facts, provided an provide an insight into the nature of Indian society at that time, deeper analysis of this data and adequate reflection on the results followed by required further research may help solve even the riddle of what has been termed the legend of one lakh schools. According to this hard data, in terms of the content and proportion of those attending institutional school education and situation in India in the year 1800 is certainly not inferior to what what obtained in England then and in many respects Indian schooling seems to have been much more extensive and it should be remembered that it is a greatly damaged and disorganized India that one is referring to the content of studies was better than what has better than what was then studied in england the duration of study was more prolonged the method of school teaching was superior than what it was there in england and it is very method which is said to have greatly helped the introduction of popular education in england but which had prevailed in india for centuries School attendance, especially in districts of Madras Presidency, even in the decade state of period in the year 1822-25, to 25, was proportionately far higher than the numbers in all variety of schools in England in 1800. The conditions under which teaching took place in Indian schools were less dingy and more natural and it was observed the teachers in the Indian schools were generally more dedicated and sober than in English versions. The only aspect and certainly a very important one where Indian institutional education seems to have lagged behind was with regard to education of girls. Quite possibly the girl schooling may have been proportionately more extensive in england in 1800 and was definitely the case a few decades later accounts of education in india do often state though it is difficult to judge their substantive accuracy from the data which uh, is so far known that uh, The absence of girls in the schools was explained, however, by the fact that most of their education took place in the home itself, so they were home tutored, mostly. It is however the Madras Presidency and the Bengal Bihar data which presents a kind of revelation. The data reveals the background of the teachers and the thought, it presents a picture which is in sharp contrast to the various scholarly pronouncements of the past hundred years or more, in which it had been assumed that education of any sort in India till very recent decades was mostly limited to the twice born, amongst the Hindus and amongst the Muslims, to those from ruling elite. The actual situation which is revealed was different, if not quite contrary, for at least amongst the Hindus in the districts of Madras Presidency and dramatically so in the Tamil speaking areas as well as the two districts of Bihar, it was the groups termed Shudras and the castes considered below them who predominated in the thousands of then still existing schools in practical schools in practically each of these areas so it was actually the Shudras which were predominating in thousands of these schools which were then existed in the area of Bihar and Bengal the last issue concerns the conditions and arrangements which alone have made such a vast system of education feasible, the the sophisticated operative fiscal arrangements of the pre-British Indian polity. Through these fiscal measures, substantial proportions of revenue had long been assigned for the performance and multiplicity of public purposes. These seem to have stayed more or less intact all the previous political turmoils and made such education possible. The collapse of this arrangement through a total centralization of revenue as well as politics led to the decay in the economy, social life, education, and etc. This inference, if at all valid, warrants a re-examination of the various currently-held intellectual and political assumptions with regard to the nature of pre-British Indian society and its political and state structure. Before discussing this last issue any further, however, it is necessary first to understand the various aspects of the educational data and the controversy it gave rise in the year 1930s. Since the detailed data of the Madras Presidency is the least known and the most comprehensive, we shall examine it first.